Awesome. Welcome. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors. I'm one of the pastors here. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Exodus chapter 19, or you can use your phone and pull your phone out and type in Exodus chapter 19 into your phone. Whatever Google gives you is going to be fine for our purposes today. Um, We're going to be covering a lot of, we're going to be jumping around in the Bible a lot today, actually. And so um, if you have like a a note-taking app on your phone, you're going to want to use that today as well, uh, just so you can kind of keep up and piece it all together. That that might be really helpful for you. Um, Before I dive into this, um, I do want to say you heard a public service announcement about a remote uh, that, had, that Jeff made in between the first and second song. That was actually for the kids' TV uh, over there. It was so that we could live stream for uh, any moms that want to use the cry room, and we found it. So, uh, praise the Lord. I actually walked up here uh, to start my sermon, and it was just sitting right there. And I was like, oh, well, great. So, if, uh, uh, for, if you didn't know, if you're online watching, we actually have a cry room set aside that's live streaming the service uh, so that you uh, uh, mothers and, and fathers of children can go in there with those ones that are a little bit louder as we wait for our kids' ministry to restart and restart our classrooms. Um, another thing I want to point your attention to, um, if you've been coming over the past couple of weeks, we have been in talking about Alpha. Alpha is our course. Uh, Alpha, uh, really for people who don't know much about Christianity and want to know more about Christianity, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and so it's like the starting point to the Christian faith. It's a, something that we do often here at Sedaris, actually. Um, most of our cohorts went through that course, actually, in, in COVID. Um, but what we are, were doing was we were going to do an in-person Alpha that was going to be starting this week, and uh, we said, you know, we're only really going to do it if we get enough people to sign up so we can create kind of this synergistic event. I'm not sure if that's a word, but maybe it is. Uh, This event that we hold at the Swedish club, and and you know, we're just, uh, we're updating everybody, letting them know that we didn't have enough people sign up for that event, and that's okay. That's okay. We are going to push it off into the fall, and it's going to be a really fun event in the fall. Still at the Swedish club. The Swedish club has just been super gracious with us, actually, and, and we can cancel on them last minute, and they say, you know what, let's just transfer your deposit to later in the year. We're like, perfect. So uh, that's coming up in the fall. So just be thinking about any of your, your friends or your coworkers or, or maybe even it's you. You're like, you know what? I would really like to know really what the Christian faith is all about. Like, where do I start to understand this beast of the Christian faith that spans what, two millennia, and there's a bunch of different denominations. I actually got to unpack why denominations are a thing this week uh, with with somebody, so that was really fun. But that's coming up in the fall. So uh, begin to start those conversations now. I have a friend or two that that I I have on my list that couldn't make Alpha this time, but now I get to ask them again, which is perfect, you know? So um, Alpha is coming up in the fall. It's just a really fun event, and it it could be just a, especially special this time as it will be an event that will be happening under as normal auspices as we can uh, in September. So it's going to be good. Alpha has been postponed. Well, you have turned over to Exodus chapter 19 this morning. Um, and this morning represents a pretty interesting uh, morning that we do at Sedaris every year. Uh, every year after Easter, we uh, take the opportunity to unpack the Ascension. The ascension. And, uh, and why would we do that? Why, why would we look at this ascension event? Because after all, really all you need in Christianity to understand the basics are kind of the back end of Holy Week, which we leaned into together. That's Good Friday, Jesus' death, and then uh, Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. Those are kind of the foundational events of Christianity, aren't they? 
Um, you can't have Christianity without Jesus dying on the cross for atoning for sin. And you can't have Christianity without God raising Jesus from the dead. Uh, those are the building blocks of Christianity. Uh, but, but you will not know how to participate in Christianity without this one more building block called the ascension. The ascension. And if you come from a liturgical church, this is um, a topic that's leaned into actually seven weeks after Easter, uh, for those of you who come from liturgical church backgrounds. Um, And that's because what happened after Jesus rose again was he hung out. He hung out with his disciples. He he talked with them. He taught them. He he ate with them for like 40 days. For 40 days before he ascends to the Father. For, for, 44, for 40 days, he just hangs out. And, but then he ascends. And we, we like to just pack it right after Easter because, you know, we have Jesus' teaching and all that stuff in the Bible already. We can get to the ascension pretty quickly. The disciples kind of needed those 40 days. We just need seven. Hey, so we like to unpack the ascension right after Easter because it clearly teaches us how we might participate in everything Jesus was doing. It's often thought to be this uh, kind of uh, strange event, and it is a strange event as we read it, but it's actually the key to participation in Christianity. So let's actually look at that together. We're going to start by looking at that together. I'm going to throw it on the screen for you. You're, stay in Exodus 19. We're going to throw Acts chapter 1 up here. This is where the event is kind of uh, laid out for us. So this is, uh, Luke is actually writing, Luke was a doctor, and he was uh, sponsored by this, this person who he calls Theophilus to recount, to interview a whole bunch of people that were around Jesus when he was alive, and then recount the events of Jesus' life and then the early church. And he writes this. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That's the ascension. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So this is a very strange event. Imagine Jesus and his disciples are talking on the top of a hill or something, And it's a very foundational event to be linked to Christian participation, is it not? Um, Because on the one hand, if if God was trying to do something here on earth, why would he leave? Why would he get out of here? And then secondly, why did he have to leave in such a strange way? Like seriously, levitation. Okay, this is weird. This is really weird. Levitation to the point where he becomes obstructed by a cloud and I don't know, there's like a matrix door up there for those of you who have seen the matrix and he opens and is out of our dimension into the heavenly realm with God the Father. That's weird. That's weird. It's almost unbelievable. Uh, last week we talked about how God parted the Red Sea in the Exodus and, and how that's an unbelievable event and how God raised Jesus from the dead and how that's an unbelievable event. And, and here on Ascension Sunday we look to another event 
that can really only be accepted on faith. There's no science that can explain uh, people levitating outside of cables and harnesses, things like this, and, and, and like magic shows. This is pretty far-fetched kind of stuff. This is pretty far-fetched. But it's this account that unlocks spiritual power for God's people and spiritual purpose for God's people. Your life, my life. It unlocks power and purpose in our life. And, and, and perhaps you didn't know, know this, and that's totally fine, because you see, the resurrection of Jesus is great for him. But what about us? Without the ascension, humanity, we would still be in the same pickle that we were beforehand when it comes to power and when it comes to purpose. Um, there's a pandemic of purpose going on right now, and I think uh, most people are aware of this. It's uh, going on primarily in the younger generations of America. Um, it was really first identified in the millennial generation, like, like me. I'm, I'm kind of your typical millennial. We're born right in the middle of being a millennial. It was first identified this pandemic of purpose in the millennial generation, but they're finding out it's just as much true in the Gen Zers that are coming up after us. And, and the, the, pan, the pandemic goes like this. Studies indicate that these younger generations are living with far more existential crisis when it comes to their purpose in life. Like, why am I here? So you, the, the, this is not very controversial. Perhaps everybody's pretty aware of this at this point, but the, the studies have gone and asked lots of populations from boomers on downwards, do you feel like your life has purpose? Boomers are like, yeah, my life's loaded with purpose. Gen Xers are like, uh, not that much, but yeah, we, we, we live with a lot of purpose. And then it's like a cliff and millennials and Gen Zers are down here. We don't really live with much purpose. We don't feel like we have much purpose in this world. But where it gets interesting, like this is pretty much common knowledge at this point, but where it gets really interesting is where each generation is looking for purpose in their lives. Because you can ask the same generations a different question, uh, which goes like this, why do you work your job? And these boomers and Gen Xers, they're saying, you know what, we just work our jobs for the paycheck. We're kind of just in it for the money, man. <laughs> like that's why we're doing it. But millennials and Gen Zers, what do they say? They say, we're trying to work our jobs to find purpose. They want their jobs to have significant purpose in the world. And so this is fascinating when we contrast both of these two. And what is, has it resulted in, though? Massive job hopping, like the world's never seen before. We go from job to job to job, looking for purpose in our work, when in reality, our work can't deliver the purpose that we seek. And the ascension tells us there's a better place to search for God's purpose. There's a better place for God's people to find purpose in life. And, and when we grasp this strange event of the ascension, we find that it's the key that opens the door to it. We, we, we find the reason for this is most clearly revealed to us for the ascension, purpose in life. It's in the Gospel of John. It's in the Gospel of John. If you were here on Good Friday, I told you about uh, John and his gospel. He's not trying to throw new things that the previous gospel writers missed about what happened in Jesus' life. He's trying to uh, open our eyes to the theological realities that were present in those events that the previous gospel writers didn't exactly uh, make explicit. Okay, and so he's really... Uh, He's like attaching all the theological things that are happening and he's explaining the theological things that Jesus said to the disciples in the moment that they didn't quite understand. And, and he does it with the ascension. 
you read through the Gospel of John, the ascension pops up in Jesus' life and teaching about eight or ten times, where it's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke at all. And, and this is what he says. This is what he tells us. Um, he says this in John 16, 6 through 7. This is what he says. Um, this is at the Last Supper. The Last Supper is John 13 through 17. It's at this Last Supper that a major topic of conversation is Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm going to leave. I'm out of here, okay? And at one point, Jesus says it like this. Jesus says, but because I've said these things to you that I'm leaving, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's kind of strange and vague. Jesus so like, do you and the Holy Spirit have a beef? Like, you guys can't be around each other. Well, so you're going to leave so that he can show up? This is very, very strange. And, and, and we just kind of read, uh, our initial reaction is after we see uh, Good Friday, the events of the cross, and then of Easter, we see God powerfully redeem his people and powerfully deliver Jesus from the dead. And our initial thought is, okay, Jesus, we're doing a lot of work here. This is great. And we want to say the same things the disciples say that we just read in Acts 1, which is, okay, what's next? You're going to set up the kingdom now, right, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, you are. You're going to do it. And bye. He's gone. He says, you all, you all are going to go into the nations. This is how Matthew put it. You all are going to baptize people. You all are going to teach them to obey everything I've commanded to you. You all are going to do it, not me. I worked the redemption. It's your job as my redeemed people to expand my redemption. That's what ascension is really all about. I worked it. You expand it. I worked it. You expand it. So he leaves. He leaves. Because what would we do if Jesus was still here? What would we do? We'd treat him like a politician. We'd vote for him. We'd say, yeah, I, I voted for Jesus. We're getting him in, in office. He's going to try to get his kingdom. He's going to try to do as much policy as possible. He's going to get it done. He's going to do it. And that's as much as we would participate. We, we, we'd vote for him, and maybe we'd blame him if it doesn't go well as well. But the ascension takes Jesus away. He, he can't be our politician. He, the buck doesn't stop with Jesus. It stops with us now. You see, if, if he was still here, we would have the tendency to shirk the responsibility of expanding his redemption in the world. Sometimes it comes up in the ways that we think, yeah, I even think this thought every now and then. Maybe you do. <sighs> sure would be nice if Jesus was here right now. Isn't that a thought? We all have, we, come on, this is church, we've got a safe place. We all think that, man, it'd be nice if Jesus was here to take the spiritual authority and get this done. But now his ascension means that this spiritual authority of expanding the redemption of the world is on us. He empowers us with the Holy Spirit to do it, but he's gone. He's gone now. And, and this isn't new in the biblical narrative. Is, is, that's why you're opened up to Exodus chapter 19. This is how God has always worked. He powerfully works redemption, and then he puts on his people to expand that redemption into the world, into the nations. This means that um, Christianity isn't just about having a relationship with God. It definitely includes that, but the ascension, it it, it confirms the rest of the scriptures. It, It tells us that following God is primarily about shouldering the responsibility of revealing who God is to the world.
That's what it means to be a Christian, to shoulder the responsibility to reveal who God is to the rest of the world. And you might say, well, maybe, Ryan, maybe. Maybe that's how it works. But your argument up to this point is very speculative, very hand-wavy. It's very true. Uh, my background is actually in physics, and so I'm all about just being like, that's speculative. Let's get some hard data. Okay, come on. And that's why we're in Exodus 19. Because here in Exodus 19, we have the hard historical data we need to say, oh, this is exactly how God works. This is exactly how God works in the world. Because Exodus 19, it functions functions as a hinge verse. It functions as a hinge verse between the first half of Exodus and the second half of Exodus. The, The first half of Exodus is all about God's redemptive, powerful work towards the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt. That's what we've been going through for the past several months, since the beginning of the year. It's all, that's what it's all about. But the second half contains the law, and it contains the tabernacle. And what we're going to find is that this law and that this tabernacle aren't just strange commands that the Israelites have to do, but they are the very way God wanted the Israelites to expand his redemption to the rest of the onlooking nations. This is the second time this has happened in the Bible, which is really cool. It's the second time this has happened in the Bible. The other place that happened is this hinge verse in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, the first 11, the first 11 chapters are what I would call epic history, E-P-O-C-H. They, it unpacks the big epics of creation, fall, uh, the flood, Tower of Babel, epic history. And then it transitions from chapter 12 to chapter 50 to the family history of Abraham. We go through Abraham and his family. Eventually, they end up in Egypt, which is where the Exodus account picks up. But, but the same thing is actually happening in this hinge verse as well. And so we're going to go to this one. I want to show you it. It's just a, a very short scripture so that you can see it. This is Genesis 12. Genesis 12. There it is. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Ethan, back up to verse 2 real quick. I will bless you. Promise of redemption. Next. And you will be a blessing. And you will expand that promise of redemption to the rest of the earth. And so now in, Gen- in Exodus chapter 19, we get to unpack what that's going to look like for the Hebrews, okay? It's always, God's plan has always been to powerfully redeem his people and then di- distribute to them the spiritual responsibility of expanding that redemption. All right, that is enough introduction. Let's finally look at this. Some of you guys are like, come on, let's get to it already. That's enough lead up. Okay, Exodus 19, this is what it says. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, what's a new moon? It's when there's no moon in the sky. So three new moons, three 28-day cycles. So about three months later, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, this is such an interesting passage, but what exactly is it? This is God inviting Israel to a covenant with him. This is a covenant invitation. This is the invitation to the Mosaic covenant in Scripture. Very, very important passage of Scripture. It's one of the top ten probably. Very important. And and so it's a 30,000-foot view of the covenant that will be unpacked at length over the course of the next three and a half chapters, or three and a half books, sorry, of the Torah. Back half of Exodus, a book called Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So these, kind of, these three verses, verses four through six, are kind of a 30,000-foot view of what the next three and a half chapters are all going to be about. This is what they say. I redeemed you. I rescued you from your oppressor and brought you to myself. I didn't just save you to leave you in the wilderness. I brought you to myself here at Sinai. He saved them and brought them to the foot of this mountain. Second, if you will be my treasured possession or if you obey, you'll be my treasured possession on earth. Why? Because three, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this provides the purpose of the law, primarily, that God is about to give them. In these verses, what we find is God has a purpose for his law, and then he has a purpose for his people, both of these working together in uh, 19.4 through 6. And so we're just going to unpack both of those things, just those two things, during our time today with what's left. Okay, so the purpose of the law is really interesting because what we find out right away is the purpose of the law is not what redeems them. They've already experienced God's redemption, God saving them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He said, I delivered you on eagle's wings out of that place. You guys didn't just scrape your way out of there. You guys flew out of there majestically. They plundered the Egyptians. They walked out in military divisions. No, following the law doesn't convince God to redeem you. That's what this is saying. What does this tell us? People don't have to clean up their act for God to reveal himself to them and save them. They don't have to clean up their act whatsoever. No, the the, the law's purpose is to make them into the most effective workers of expanding God's redemption to the rest of the world. The law didn't get them the job. The law is the manual, the training manual, teaching them how to do the job of expanding God's redemption. And so right away, we can, we can ask ourselves, do we conceive of our obedience to God in this way? Do, do we think of following the things that the Bible asks of us and encourages us to do? Do we think of those things as the way to expand God's redemption into the rest of the world. You see, this, this mindset is, is pretty rare. I, I talk with people about living a Christian life all the time, inside and outside the church. And, and the primary way that people relate to uh, their obedience goes something like this. God is the author of life. God is the author of of life. And, and so when it comes to living life and, and living a satisfied life, he knows best how to do it. And so I'm going to listen to him so that I can live a good, satisfied life. 
See, obedience is linked to personal satisfaction here. It's actually a very reasonable argument, and, and, and you know what? It's, it's true. It's very true. If you want to live a happy and satisfied life, your best shot at doing that is, is obeying God in the ways that he has outlined or that he's laid out for people to live. But it's still reductionistic. It misses that we obey God in order that we might come to, ex- not, not to experience the benefits of redemption, but extend that redemption to other people. And our satisfaction is a byproduct. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Because this is what is at stake if we think that listening to God, obeying God, is linked to our personal satisfaction in life. What happens when we suffer? What happens when suffering comes to our doorstep? What happens when obeying God leads to our suffering? What happens when you take a stand at work and say, you know what, this is a dishonest way to do this, and so you don't get the promotion? Or you're ostracized until you eventually quit, you're fired. What if obeying God leads to suffering? See, if you, if you link your obedience to a life of satisfaction, you're going to be very confused when you suffer. And when you suffer, you're going to ask the question, is it even worth obeying God then? And perhaps even conclude that it's not. That it's not. Here at Sedaris, uh, we have this phrase that we, we say a lot, and it goes like this. It's not about you. It's not about you, and, and it's true even of our obedience to God. Isn't that interesting? You see, obeying God isn't about our satisfaction in life, even though if we don't obey, things probably won't go very well for us. Exodus 19 tells us that we obey God not for our satisfaction, but to expand the redemption of God to the outsider. So God always, he's, he's already redeemed his people at this point by delivering them out of Egypt, and he asks them this question. Do you want to shoulder this, this redemption expansion? Is that what you guys want to do, Israel? I, I kind of brought you out. Do you guys want to do this? They can say yes or no. Their redemption isn't dependent on it. You see, this is instructive for us as well today because for some of you, uh, you this may be the first time you've encountered this subject and, and the first thing you might be thinking is, oh shoot, is God going to welcome me into the kingdom one day? And the answer is yes. I want to dispel that to you. God's, this question for mission expansion comes after the redemption event for Israel. And actually, Paul puts it like this as well. The same dynamic he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 10. He says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. He's talking about how he shared the gospel with some people, and then some other people kind of, he left to go start at other churches in other cities, and other people came behind him to, to kind of further teach people how to live a Christian life. But let each one take a care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is in Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of redemption. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So so our salvation isn't at stake if we say, you know what, I don't know if I can shoulder this mission expansion, this to expand your redemption to the world, God. So our, our salvation really isn't at stake here. 
And, and Israel's going to say yes to this question in the next few verses. And, and to be fair, they're going to have a mixed history of trying to obey well. But their salvation isn't at stake. They're going to be a part of, of Israel. They're going to continue to have faith in God. And so our salvation isn't at stake. All Paul says is just that our, our eternal rewards are at stake. And potentially um, helping other people come to find everlasting life is at stake if we don't get on board with expanding the redemption. But individual salvation isn't at stake here. And that's what Israel found as well. Many got on board with this mission expansion uh, paradigm. Uh, you, there's so many examples in the Hebrew scriptures of, of Hebrews getting on board with this. Uh, Samuel, King David, and I'm sure multitudes of other Hebrews that aren't in the scriptures actually got on board with, yeah, let's expand redemption to the world by the way that we live and our life in the world. Uh, some won't. Perhaps the majority doesn't. I'm, I'm not sure. It's difficult to be like a historical accountant and judge Israel on how, how, how many of them got on board with this. But, but some do, some don't. <clears throat> but it doesn't mean they don't experience the redemptive work of God. Not at all. Not at all. It just means they cease functioning as its treasured possession to expand that redemption to the world. So that's the purpose of the law. Okay, and we're actually going to look at it again at the, towards the end here because there's a very specific application when it comes to us. But now what do these verses tell us about what the purpose looks like for God's people? God's people. Because for Abraham, <laughs> in Genesis chapter 12, the purpose is very vague, right? Go be a blessing, Abraham. He's probably like, cool, okay. Maybe that meant something to him. Uh, but, I mean, this is kind of the vague thing we say to people when we don't know what to say. Like, I want to say nice things to you. Bless you. Yeah, you know? Maybe we'll close our emails with it. I did that for a while. Blessings. What does that actually mean? Um, <laughs> but the Hebrews answered yes to the question. And then we get a, a lot of clarity. A lot of clarity on what this is actually going to look like. Something that uh, Abraham didn't get. And it's, it goes like this, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Now, the Hebrews may have answered yes, but they're probably like, we're just slaves for a couple hundred years. What are you talking about? What are you talking about, God? What does that actually mean? And over the next three and a half books of the Bible, God makes that very clear. He's going to say, this is how priests relate to you, Israel. Now you as an entire nation of Israel, you take that, that relationship and just translate it from your nation to the rest of the nations in the world. That's what you're going to do. So God teaches them. And we really don't understand the priesthood language either. It's very alien to our modern ears. And, and we might want to do well with it as well because it's like, well, Jesus came, like the priest system isn't like a thing anymore, right? Things are different now. But they're not. They're not at all. Jesus' disciple Peter, he wrote this after Jesus has died, after he died, resurrected, and ascended. It goes like this. This is in 1 Peter chapter 2. Same language. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's talking to Christians. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. That all sounds familiar. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Obey God, that's the law. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's paraphrasing Exodus 19 to tell Christians how to love people who aren't Christians. He's leaking obedience to mission. Now, now one or two of these verses in the passage that we just read are typically yanked out, and they're typically said, okay, all believers are priests, which means that you have the ability to pray to God on your own. It's a pushback against the Catholicism, which said you need a priest to mediate your relationship with God, primarily in the, in the, the Middle Ages. And that's a good pushback, okay? That, that's a good pushback that was once needed. Um, but you actually don't need to go here to, to do that. You could go to a couple dozen other places in the New Testament, like Jesus saying, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. You can have a relationship with me right away. You know, Peter isn't using this priest language to remind you of your relationship with God. He's clearly using it to remind us of our relationship with those who don't know God. Very different. Very different. So, how do we do this? What does it actually mean to be a kingdom of priests? It becomes very clear as we unpack Exodus how to do that in the Torah. And And like I said, what the priests do on behalf of the Israelites we do on the behalf of, the, of all the nations that are, on, are looking on. And the best way to distill, you know, three and a half books of priesthood language down for you, and just a simple statement is, is, is like this. This is what priests do. They do two things. They bring the knowledge of God to the people. Knowledge of God to the people. Then they bring the sacrifices of the people to God. That's what it meant to be a priest. Knowledge of God to the people, sacrifices of people to God. And so the question becomes, well, how do we do those things? How do we do those things? And Peter made it really clear. How do we bring the knowledge of God to the world? Well, Peter gave us a phrase that told us exactly how we're to do that. Can you throw it back up there, Ethan? Uh, The first one. There it is. That you may, so your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. That's all Exodus 19. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. We're to proclaim the greatness and the goodness of God and all that he has done in our world and all that he's done in our lives. That begins with redemption, but then it includes all the things that God continues to give you in the world, all of the graces that he continues to work in your life as you follow him. Uh, this is encaptured in the, the notion of witnessing. You probably, if you've gone to, been around Christianity for a while, you've heard this term, witnessing, witnessing. If you've been tuning into the George Floyd trial on your lunch breaks, like I have over the course of the past few weeks, what, do you, what, what have you been watching? You've been watching witnesses witness. They, 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 saw, they saw something, they experienced something that they witnessed. This turns them into something else, a, a noun called being a witness. And then they assume the stand, and then they do the verb form. They witness to what they saw. So we have... Uh, God redeems people, which makes them witnesses. And now to expand redemption, what do they do? They witness to what happened. This is what they do. The entire book of Acts is kind of written through this lens of witness. The words used over and over and over over again. We did a sermon series in Acts in the back half of 2018 and the front half of 2019, I think. And if you want to unpack what this witnessing looks like, um, just go back and listen to kind of play around in, in that sermon series. It was a really fun one for us, actually. Um, now, many uh, Christians, we tend to function as the noun 
not the verb form of witness. It's a shame because without witnessing, we can't really fulfill the purpose for which we were created and redeemed for. Okay? Um, and so the question really becomes for us, what are the obstacles that are getting in the way of verbal witnessing? Is it isolation? Do we just not know enough people? Um, is, it, is it fear of persecution? Or are we afraid what might happen to us if, it, if we in fact were to proclaim the excellencies of God? Now, this, isn't, this is just witnessing to what's happened. This isn't trying to convince someone, hey, you need to be a Christian. This is a, I went to church on Sunday and God showed up and it was awesome. So what are the obstacles getting in the way of saying something like that? Um, and then the other thing that, that we should talk about is what are the things that we're leaning on in life that deliver ultimate purpose to us instead of being these expansion, these, these redemptive expansioners, expanders of redemption. What, what are these other things that we're leaning on? And, and a good way to identify those things is to ask a question. What is it that if you took it away you would be extremely sad or extremely mad? What are the things that would make you growl if they were taken away from you? Those are probably the things that you're leaning on for significant, significant purpose in your life, okay? So that's just the first piece. The priests bring the knowledge of God to the people by witnessing, by proclaiming the, the excellencies of God. Then the second piece of being a, a priest is to bring the world to the means of atonement. This is the sacrifice language, to bring the world to the means of atonement with God. Now, this is different than witnessing. Witnessing alerts people to the presence of God in the world and his love for humans and the possibility for redemption. This is kind of proclaiming the excellencies of God. Now, what this will do is it will make some consider following God themselves. And in the Torah, the priests would mediate the sacrifice of the people who wanted to follow God by teaching them how sacrifice worked and how atonement works. So we bring the knowledge of God to the people by telling them and proclaiming who he is. And then those people who are very interested in learning more, we teach them about the means of atonement. We teach them how they can link up to the atonement event of Christ. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Essentially, it, mean, it, it means that God's want, God wants all Christians to be preachers and teachers. It's a little bit scary, isn't it? <laughs> I mean... It's nerve-wracking preaching. I was anxious before I walked up these stages to preach. <laughs> so, so, like, this isn't something that, that is just naturally for some people, and this is nerve-wracking for everybody. So, preachers proclaiming the excellencies, and then teachers explaining how you might participate in atonement. So now you say, hold up, Ryan, hold up, hold up. You've forgotten a big part of what witnessing is. Witnessing is how we live our life, isn't it? Like, that's, that's really witnessing. Well, maybe. I'm not so convinced that our actions are included in witnessing, but the author of Exodus 19 definitely has our actions in mind when they use their phrase, this phrase, a holy nation. You're to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what does it mean to be a holy nation? Well, what we see in the rest of the Exodus, we're going to get the chance to unpack this as we walk through it, is that holiness is intrinsic to what it means to be a priest. One cannot be a priest unless they are holy. And holiness is talked about in a somewhat complex way in the Torah. So just let me define it really quickly. Um, holiness is first an unchosen reality for God's people. 
God will look at his people. He says, you are my treasured possession. You are holy. And so because God has redeemed them, they are holy. They are special. God has set them apart from, as, as one nation apart from all other nations. They're special. They're holy. But then a second piece goes like this. Even though they are holy to God in that way, God will tell them something. He'll say this, be holy as I am holy. So now, now we're confused. It's like, I thought they were holy. Now you're asking them to be holy. Are they holy or not? Which is it, God? And, and, and essentially God is saying this, strive to be what you already are. Be holy as I am holy. Jesus will show up on the scene in the Sermon on, on the Mount. He'll put it like this. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Same idea. Why is it important? Well, just remember what Peter said at the end of our passage earlier, that our deeds validate our witness to who God's to who God is. This is, let's look at that again. Can you look at the back end of this? 1 Peter 2, 11. Yeah, yeah, here it is. Yeah, go forward one. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. I'm putting you through the ringer up there today, Ethan. You're doing great. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the question then becomes, like, what deeds does Peter have in mind? What are we supposed to abstain from? What are we supposed to pursue? And to answer that phrase, we go, or to answer that question, we go to the phrase, be holy as I am holy. And the passage we go to is Leviticus 19, Leviticus chapter 19. At the beginning of Leviticus 19, God says, be holy as I am holy, Israel, okay? And it's the general heading of Leviticus, and then he gives a list for how to actually accomplish that. We're not going to read through it. We've gone enough places in Scripture today, but I'm going to just list them off for you, okay? Be holy as I am holy, Israel, and this is what it looks like. Mutual respect for everyone within the family and everyone within the community. Exclusive worship of Yahweh as God. Economic generosity in their agriculture. Economic justice in their employment rights, social compassion to the disabled, judicial integrity in the legal system, loving one's neighbor as oneself. That phrase is actually invented here at Sinai. This is where it is first revealed to humanity. Um, Sexual integrity, which is is sexual acts are only permitted within marriage. Um, Sometimes in, in Seattle, what happens is I'll be uh, giving premarital, premarital counseling to a couple, and, and they've gotten on board with the sexual ethic. Like, yeah, we're not having sex until we're married, but in Seattle, it costs an arm and a leg to live. We're engaged. We're going to be married in a few months anyways. Can we at least move in together now to save, I don't know, like $10,000? It's a very reasonable uh, uh, thought, right? And I always say, you know what? You shouldn't, because your obedience is for the onlooking world, just like Israel. And if you move in together, people who aren't yet Christians are going to assume that your sexual ethic is the same as theirs, and that's actually what's at stake. I know in the past we've said, you could just live in my house for a couple months if you need to save the money. You know, I mean, that's how important it is to preserve uh, our sexual ethic for the onlooking world. All right, let's keep going. Um, abstaining from occult practices. No ill treatment of ethnic minorities, but rather ethnic equality before the the law. 
instead of just loving the neighbor at yourself, now we have an escalation of it. Loving the foreigner as yourself. And then commercial honesty in all trading transactions. This is what it means to be holy as I am holy, God says. And all through the chapter is this, is this refrain, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, which is to say, your quality of life must reflect my character. Your life is lived on an open stage in front of all other peoples, and this is what I, I require of you because it reflects who I am to them. This is what I would do if I were in the world, essentially. And he shows up as Jesus, and he does those things. He validates it. So, for us, it means to, to lean into this together. And, and if you find yourself like, like falling short of this, it, that's okay, because it's primarily, it's not your fault, really. Um, you know, our parents' generation really leaned into uh, the, this the, the notion of megachurch. And, and not all megachurches were like this, but they would take the passage of Peter and say, of First Peter that we unpacked and say, you can relate to God on your own, but when it comes to actually preaching and teaching, leave that to us. Leave that to, we, we got that covered, and our parents' generation was kind of comfortable with that agreement. But you know what? It, it actually doesn't work. I grew up in the megachurch. My parents were actually saved by megachurch. That was great. Two of my brothers aren't Christians. It's so sad. It's because we, we place preaching and teaching on, on pastors and, and paid professionals instead of everybody. The mission of God rests with everybody. Part of this sermon is extremely selfish on my behalf. I need you guys to proclaim the excellencies of redemption for Lucy. I need you guys to teach Penny about atonement. I need you guys to show Viva what it looks like to live a holy life. I mean, we're doing that every night at home myself, but we need a community to do this if we're going to pass on this to the next generation. That's what's at stake. Because once people get into their mid to late 20s, 30s, pretty much set. It doesn't mean we can't hope. It doesn't mean we can't continue to preach to those people, proclaim the excellencies of God, teach them about atonement, show them what it looks like to live a holy life. But there's so much baggage at that point to unpack that many are unable to get through those obstacles. So don't hear me just trying to guilt you and shame you into preaching and teaching the gospel uh, to people in your life. That's just the surface level stuff that really naturally flows from something else entirely. These are things that naturally flow from accepting the spiritual responsibility to pass on the gospel to the next generation. That's what we're about here at Sedaris. Some of us have been to Sedaris for a while. Look around at faces. You guys have been here for, for seven years. And that's because Sedaris has unashamedly, we've said, you know what? People right out of college, that's who we're trying to reach. Dave has a funny term for them. Poperies, post-college pre-kids. That, those are the people we're trying to reach. And those are still the people we're trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus that all of us are missionaries to this population, that all of us are proclaiming the excellencies of who God is, all of us are teaching them about what it means to find atonement in Christ, and all of us are showing them what it looks like to live a life devoted to God. Why? Because it reflects who he is and what he's like. And my, by the grace of God, may, may we do it. May we do it out of love for the world and love for him.